Today's episode of the Andy Staples Show is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find us on smart speakers or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash tips. Hey, it's Andy. Thank you so much for joining us. We're a mere eight days away from the NFL draft, and we bring in Dane Brugler, the athletics draft guru, to talk about all the potential picks that we're going to see next week. We talk Tua. We talk Justin Herbert. Where are they going to go? Will people trade around to get them? Which one of those goes before the other? We talk about the bevy of great wide receivers in this draft and the potential run on running backs early in the second round. It's a great conversation. Dane is so knowledgeable about this stuff. He wrote a freaking book, essentially, that if you're a subscriber to The Athletic, you have access to right now, just on the guys in this draft. It's a fascinating conversation. Welcome to the Andy Staples Show. We are a mere eight days away from the NFL draft, the about the only thing in the sports world that is happening when everybody thought it was going to happen. Uh, it's going to involve lots of GMs probably screaming at their iPads because they can't figure out how to work a Zoom meeting. Uh, hopefully somebody's kids will show up with, with pets in the background. It's going to be a surreal draft experience, but... Our guy at The Athletic, Dane Brugler, has been going about his business, and I don't even know how you do this, Dane. Have you slept at all? You, you put out a massive draft guide that we call The Beast, that if you're a subscriber to The Athletic, you have access to, and it, it's more than, it's a book, essentially. And then, earlier this week, a seven-round mock draft, every single pick. Have you slept, Dane? The day after I hit send on that guide uh, to be public was the best sleep I've gotten all year. It felt, it felt great. Um, and you know, while because it, it took, for, I mean, shout out to uh, you know our editors at the Athletic who had to edit that thing. Uh, but while they were editing, which took you know a good week and a half, two week process, uh, I started working on that seven round mock. So I was staying staying productive, and uh, you know, because that. Doing a seven round mock, if you're going to take the time to do it, um, I'm, you know, I'm going to put some thought behind it. And, you know, you try to follow the breadcrumbs, uh, the draft trends. Uh, it's a little tougher this year because we don't have the 30 visits. We don't have pro days. Uh, so a lot of the draft buzz and you know the rumors and the gossip is just based off of FaceTimes and, uh, you know, what teams are telling me and agents and things like that. So, uh, but you want to match it up. It's not just like, okay, well, the Giants need a linebacker. So my next be- best linebacker is this guy. You know, it's, there's more thought to it uh, behind that. So hopefully people enjoy that seven round mock and yeah, the, the guide, the, the beast, uh, it's the feedback's been awesome. And which, which makes me happy because it, it's a year round thing. Um, a lot of research goes into it, a lot of, um, it, you know, background stuff. And that's, we're not going to agree on every player. I'm not going to peg every player exactly right. 
Um, I, I feel good about my batting average, but you know, it's that's not really what I hope people get out of it. I hope it's you know all the background information. It's all uh, the information that's in there, the metrics, uh, the testing information. Uh, you know, if you don't know anything about a player, my hope is that by reading uh, my report, you'll have a pretty good idea of where he's where he's been. Uh, you know, what, what kind of player he is, and then and then where he's headed. So appreciate the uh, the kind words. It's it's amazing. I mean, as far as a subscriber benefit for the athletic, you think about what what the athletic subscription costs each year. When you add in the fact you get a freaking book out of it. I mean, it is a yeah. book. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Two hundred fifty thousand words. That's incredible. I, I've loved it because I, I'm doing a series where our NFL beat writers give me the needs for each team, and I fill them based on how I feel about these players. Now, the difference between what I'm doing and your seven-round mm-hmm. mock draft is I can cheat a little bit because I can say, well, if this guy is still av- available here, but if he's not, you can go ahead and do this. With your seven-round mock, you know, once once Derek Brown's gone, he's gone. So it's not like somebody <laughs> else can go pick him up or, or you know, if things fall differently, they, they go. But I, I want to get into this because I think, you know, for college football fans, the, the thing – if they're looking at your seven-round mock, the thing that just jumps off the page at them is you've got Justin Herbert going to the Dolphins. And I think for, for most people who are primarily college football fans, the idea, you know, Joe Burrow going over, over to a, get that, had maybe the best season anybody's ever had. They played each other. You, you got to see them head-to-head. But the idea of anybody else going over to a, is really tough, even with Tua's durability issues. So what makes you think that, that the Dolphins would go with Herbert here? Yeah, and here's the thing, was we just don't know how these teams feel about Tua and the medicals. And it's it's something that, and I mentioned this, uh, leaving the Combine, um, talking to teams uh, at the Combine and then leaving Indianapolis, I got this kind of a similar response, as they were all cautiously optimistic but it's hard to find any team that says, yeah, you know what, we, we feel great about his medical situation moving forward. And, you know, we, we're going to have no concerns. And you just don't hear anybody talk like that. So do we know how all 32 teams feel? Uh, do we know their medical, uh, their team doctors and all, you know, the PT staff? And, you know, we don't. And that's that's the disconnect here where that, that that's what makes Tua such a wild card in this draft. I don't think we're talking enough about if, to a word fall past six uh if the dolphins and the chargers at five and six if they you know we just don't know how their doctors feel if they are if they don't have the appetite for risk that uh you know to take on to draft a player like tua and the injury history at in the top six picks where where does tua fall uh it, it's tough to figure that out with the raiders at 12 that, that, that's the one that's like the one that? i was thinking when you said that because it's i'm, I'm right. looking they're the only team that I can see taking a quarterback until the Dolphins again. <laughs> so that's crazy. Right. Well, and because, yeah, the, the Colts, they had the 13th pick, but they traded out with a DeForest Buckner trade. The Bucks at 14, they they see their window to win right now. You know, why it would make sense to draft a player like Tua to take over for Tom Brady eventually, they know they have a window to win right now. So they're going to draft a tackle or a, a pass rush or someone else that's going to help them win immediately. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it, it, it's hard to figure out New England sitting there at 23, would they look to trade up and maybe make a move? And the thing is, is, we just don't know enough about the medical situation. And, you know, there are some teams that are so risk adverse that, um, you know, it just, it makes it tough to project a player like this. Uh, and, you know, you throw in everything else that we've, 
you know, the country has been through in the last month, um, you know, it just complicates the situation even more. Not that a pro day necessarily would, uh, you know, really help us make a decision or understand, you know, how teams feel there, but not having the medical rechecks, that's something that is, you know, and just for, for background for, so people understand, you know, obviously the medical portion of the combine, that's the biggest, uh, that's, that's the biggest reason reason to have the combine. Yeah, it exists in the first place because of the medicals. Exactly. But for a large portion of these prospects, they're either in the middle of their rehab or, you know, they had surgery uh, after the combine. And so there's a dozen, two dozen, um, you know, players every single year that have to go back to Indianapolis in the beginning of April uh, every year for rechecks uh, where teams can get updated medical information. But we don't have that this year, obviously. And so what they're doing is each player where they're quarantined they get assigned an NFL trainer. Uh, so if you a team, if a player's uh, training in Arizona, the Arizona Cardinals trainer would be assigned to him, and teams are able to NFL teams are able to send this trainer uh, and their PT staff all the different things they would want him to look at. Uh, you know, both ankles, the finger, the the hip, and uh, this trainer has to perform these uh, all these examinations on these players and post it to the combine website. So the teams, all the teams that have access to it. So it's very different this year and not having the 30 visits. I, I can't emphasize that part enough. Having these players at the facility where they get a chance to interact with the coaches, uh, interact with uh, the different people on staff. The medical uh, doctor can have another look at the player. So not having those 30 visits is, is a big piece of the pie that's missing here. So, I'm curious about number three because, you know, the Lions need a corner. Jeff Okuda is going to be there, but there's a chance Jeff Okuda is there at five. So is it possible if the Dolphins want to make sure they get who they want as a quarterback that they would maybe swap picks with the Lions to make sure nobody else jumps into that spot and takes who they want? Right. And I think that's the, the Lions are hoping for that because they'd love to pick up another draft pick or two. Uh, move back, still get the guy they want. And I think they've got their eye. I think Okuda's who they want, but they'd be okay with Simmons, with Derek Brown. There's a few of these players that they'd be okay with. And if you're the Dolphins, you know, you're sitting here and you have 14 picks in this draft. It's unbelievable. You're not going to draft 14 times. I know when I was doing this mock draft for him, I I was basically drafting a a new team for him. You're trying to think, okay, which position haven't we gone to yet? They're the only team in my mock that drafted a, a long snapper. Uh, but this, uh, <laughs> Miami, I would not be surprised at all. Yeah. They package some of those picks, uh, not, not, I don't think they need to use one of those first rounders. You know, we're talking maybe a third and a six, something like that. Move up two spots, get the quarterback that you want, whether that is Herbert, whether it is Tua and the giants, they, you know, Gettleman could go a few different ways. I, I still think offensive tackle, um, at number four to the giants, you think of his first two first round picks in uh, in New York, uh, Saquon Barkley, Daniel Jones. Who's going to help those two guys maximize uh, their ability? Uh, and that's an offensive tackle, upgrade that offensive line, and then sitting there at number five would be the Lions, who uh, presumably could have every option that they were considering at number three. So that would make plenty of sense. I wanted to ask you about the receivers in this draft because I, I was reading the Beast. And I was looking at some of the other uh, draft publications, and that seems to be where there's the most disagreement. And it seems to be because it's a, there's a lot of quality there. I, I was looking at, you know, some somebody's number four receiver might be somebody else's number 12 receiver. But then I look mm-hmm. at the names and I look at their production in college, and I'm like, 
you know what? They're all pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, there's no question. And I, I think it's, you know, even even the top three, the quote-unquote top three that we've been talking about the most, the C.D. Lambs, uh, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs. Uh, talking to some teams, I know I talked to a team the other day who has Mims in their top three, uh, who no one's helped themselves more during the draft process than Denzel Mims, goes to the Senior Bowl and shows that he's, you know, at Baylor, they they had him run a specific route tree, uh, a lot of basic stuff. Uh, at, at the Senior Bowl, he was able to expand that a little bit and show he could do a little bit more. And then he goes to the Combine, and it was ridiculous uh, with a 4.38 uh, 40-yard dash, a ridiculous three-cone time. And this is a player that's 6'3", 207, and he has uh, 33 and 7 eighths in his arms, which makes offensive tackles jealous. So that the combination of length, the athletic profile, uh, just his production in college with an average quarterback uh, with what he had at Baylor. So I think Mims is on his way up and you know he's put himself in that conversation to be a top 25 pick. It's going to be interesting to see which receivers are first drafted. Uh, I think C.D. Lamb, uh, I, I would guess, based off of my talks with teams, that he's well-liked the most. But all it takes is one team to think Henry Ruggs and that 4-2-7 speed is the missing part of their offense, and he could be the first uh, receiver off the board. Uh, so it's it's going to be really interesting to see the order of these receivers, how many go in the first round. And then I, I think the best part about this receiver class is there's you know, we're not going to see a lull at all. It's it's going to be it's going to be a position that stretches throughout the entire draft, and the pure just the volume of talent. We're going to see second round receivers fall to the third, third round receivers fall to the fourth, and so on. Uh, just because there's only so many spots for these guys. On average, twelve and a half receivers get taken in the top 100 every single year, and you know, good luck trying to limit your list to 12 guys that should go in the top 100 this year. You're gonna you're gonna fill up a list of 15, 20 guys, and there's just only so many spots for these players to go. Yeah, I did a feature a few weeks ago on Antonio Gandy Golden from Liberty, and I think in a lot of years, people be looking at him as maybe a late second round pick. He may not go till the fourth. Mm-hmm. And not yeah. not for lack of ability or, or lack of production in college. It's just that deep. And uh, I think you're right. I, if I'm picking, if I'm the first team that's going to take a receiver, I want C.D. Lamb. I, that's just me. Mm-hmm. He he plays, you know, he, he's not a huge guy, but he plays like he's 230 pounds. If you watch him breaking tackles, uh, it, it's insane for a guy his size. And I do think, you know, that's one of the things where physical maturity, getting a little bit older, probably helps him. He does fill out even a little bit more and if he can keep that speed up then I, I don't I don't know how you deal with him because he's so complete but I, I will I want to talk about my favorite of your first round mock draft picks I, I love Marlon Davidson to the Patriots mm. because I, I remember I had a conversation with with Kevin Steele who's the defensive coordinator at uh, at Auburn early last season and we were talking about Marlon Davidson, and, and he was talking about just how versatile he is, how willing he is to do anything the team needs him to do. He'll play anywhere. And obviously, you know, there's some maybe a natural, more natural fit as a, as a kind of a gap shooting three technique, but they had Derek Brown for that. You know, uh, he's actually pretty good coming off the edge, but they also had Nick Coe and they had Big Cat Bryant. So he, he would just basically say, Coach, whatever you need from me. And then they alter the rotation so that they get him in different spots. And it feels like a dream player for Bill Belichick. 
Yeah, and for a lot of the reasons that you just mentioned, um, and he's he's a durable player. Uh, you know, he played 51 games the last four years. Uh, the versatility, I think, is key because he talking to some teams, they think he's a jumbo defensive end. Other teams project him as more of that that gap shooting three technique, where he can uh, be a disruptive force from the interior. Uh, but I think he can do both, and uh, he doesn't have to come off the field, uh, you know, on certain downs. Uh, you know, he'll be part of a rotation. He'll play. Uh, you know, I think you project him probably as a, a sixty-five snap or sixty-five percent of snaps in a game type of type of guy. But with his body type, with his athleticism, with his effort, um, and you know, everyone that I've talked to at the program speaks really highly of his football character, his work ethic, kind of like what you were referring to. It's just he's a guy that is a program guy, and that's that's a lot of what Bill Belichick will look for in you know the Patriot way, what fits what they do. And so, yeah, I think that when I was uh, going over the Patriots options, I think Zach Bond from Wisconsin would make a lot of sense for them. They're looking for that versatile linebacker who can do a lot of things. I think Bond would be a, would have been a great fit. Uh, looking at different players, but then I kept coming back to Marlon Davidson. And, you know, just as they rebuild that defensive line in New England, uh, you know, how he could be a big part of that. Well, and the other thing is he probably doesn't, for anybody else, project going that high. But with the Patriots, they seem like, when they decide that's who they want, that's who they're getting. Because I don't I remember Isaiah Wynn being projected as high as they picked him. But when they picked mm-hmm. him, I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Because, you know, no, he's not got, you know, perfect measurables for an NFL offensive tackle. But look at what he did. Look at look at his personality. He, he feels like a perfect fit for them. So it, it, how important is it to kind of know who you are and what you are? as you're drafting, because it seems like knowing your team's identity and being able to find the guys that fit into that identity, almost more important than being able to judge their talent. Right. And that's, that's huge. And you have to have the scouting staff and the the coaches on the same page, because if, uh, you know, the, the front office is drafting for them and what they think is, you know, what, what the team needs, but the coaches are looking at a different thing. Then that there's a big disconnect there that is, you know, going to create create issues. Either that player is not going to fit for what they're doing, or uh, you know the the front office is going to, uh, you know, it, it just it, it's a recipe for disaster. And that's why you know I look at some teams and uh, you know like the Dallas Cowboys for example. A couple of years ago, uh, the scouts they they had big grades on T.J. Watt coming out of Wisconsin. And they were they were ready to draft him in the first round, but the coaches uh, did not like Rod, or specifically Rod Marinelli. They did not like uh, T.J. Watt. They thought he was a a guy that was going to be more of a stand up player, not a hand on the ground edge rusher. So they did not like him as much for the fit. So what did the Cowboys do? They listened to their coaches, which I and this is the problem is you know they went with Taco Charlton, who fit more for the Cowboys scheme instead of taking the better player. So it, there's, a, it, there's a little bit of an issue there because the I think the f- scouting staff did their job correctly and identified the most talented player, but they also listened to their coaching staff, which is, I think, theoretically the right thing to do. But it, it, in hindsight, they drafted the wrong player because obviously T.J. Watt's gone on to have a, a very productive NFL career and Taco Charlton is has not. So uh, it, it's something that it has it has to be on the same page. You have to work uh, together to do what is best for your team, and uh, th- I think that's where we see the you know the Seattle Seahawks, the Baltimore Ravens, the Patriots, uh, the the best drafting teams have a really good relationship between the front office and the coaching staff. Well, and and that's what's interesting to me as someone who covers college because in college football the coaches pick the players. 
you know, we can't understand why everybody doesn't operate like the Patriots. But then, you know, we see the Texans and we're like, ah, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe that makes sense. But, but that it seems like you'd want the people who are going to cook the meal to be the ones that select the groceries, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. But the difference, and, and this is the part that, that I try to wrap my head around, is, you know, in college, you're, you're taking 25 new players a year. Your hit rate only has to be 25 to 30 percent, and you can be you can be good. In the NFL, you got to have a little bit higher hit rate than that, and I think that's that's probably where the difference is. And uh, you know, it, it is an interesting mix when you, when you find those coaches and GMs that that get along really well and that seem to be on the same page. Uh, are, are Pete Carroll and John Schneider kind of regarded that way? Because it, it, from yeah, at least absolutely. from the outside, it, it looks that way. Yeah, and that's going to be amplified even more in this process with everything going on. Uh, you know, worth all these guys are not going to be in the same room together in the war room, uh, making these picks, deciding to trade or not. Uh, with everybody going to be out in their own homes, uh, we're going to see that the really w- well-run organizations are going to be on the same page, communicate well, and have good drafts. Meanwhile, the teams that maybe don't have that communication down. Uh, or, you know, first-year general managers, first-year head coaches, uh, maybe a, a team that had plenty of turnover in their front office or the coaching staff, that's where there, there is a little bit of potential for uh, some, some negative things happening for a team during this specific draft process because everything is so different. Um, and it just it, – the, the NFL draft's always the ultimate reality show because, you know, every 10 minutes we're waiting for something, something new. There's an anticipation that builds uh, constantly with every pick. And with this year, it's just amped up even more because there's there's something, you know, we expect something weird to happen or, you know, we just don't know from pick to pick. Are we going to see less trades this year? Are we going to see more trades that are worked out maybe the week before going on right now? That's what teams are figuring out. Um, you know, are we, we going to have a scouting director banging on the wall to his 13-year-old daughter to get off Netflix because she's using up all the Wi-Fi? I mean, what, what's going to happen? Like, it's just going to be the potential for craziness, which, you know, sign me up. I just can't. I, I'd love to know that Ozark season three caused somebody to not get their pick in on time. <laughs> It'd be tremendous. Yeah, that, that sounds like an athletic story uh, coming coming uh, in a few weeks. I I, ho- I just hope I get to interview Jason Bateman for it. That's that's my only my only request. <laughs> there you go. So, all right, let's talk quarterbacks beyond the the three obvious ones in the first round. You have Jordan Love falling into the second to the Colts, and it. it feels like the general consensus is love is the next guy after Joe Burrow, Tua, and Justin Herbert. But that's one of those where the folks who, who watch a lot of college football go, okay, I get the physical tools. Because you, you watch him play and you're like, wow, this guy's arm is outstanding. But the drop-off in production after the change in coaching staff really did kind of bug me. I, I And you know, if you know the history of David Yost, who was the guy – who was the OC at Utah State in Jordan Love's sophomore year. Okay, this is a guy who's made Chase Daniel look great, who's made Blaine Gabbert look great. Basically, everywhere he's gone, the quarterback has looked fantastic. And they haven't always looked so great without him. And I do wonder if if that was the case with Jordan Love, if, if that system just fit him and then he may not be able to do the same thing in something else. Yeah, and I think it'd be fascinating if we f- if we flipped his 2018 season and his 2019 season, we'd be talking about him as a lock top ten pick. 
because he was so good as a sophomore, 32 to 6 touchdown interception ratio. And then, yeah, this year, uh, kind of along the lines of what you were saying, you know, it's I think it's from an evaluator standpoint, you have to figure out uh, what's the difference between reasons and excuses. And when you look at the fact that one returning starter on offense, his left tackle, he lost everybody else. The fact that the coaching staff uh, was gone. Uh, they not they, had, the most, coach, they had most of the receivers. He had almost not, his they entire starters. Well, they, 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 were, they were different starters. Uh, no, no, they uh, had they had their they had their, I believe their top two were the same guys. See, he told me when when he was talking, he said that he had, they had replaced their uh, starting receivers from the previous year. I may be blanking. Uh, I may be blanking on that. I, I will check. I am checking that right now because uh, yeah, I mean Mariner. He 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 definitely played as a sophomore, uh, or I, I, or not not Mariner the uh, the other guy. His Mariner was a transfer. Yeah. But yeah, I mean he he's he said that they oh you uh, know what they did they, they I I am mixing up seventeen and eighteen and eighteen and nineteen that's what it was seventeen and eighteen okay. they from seventeen to eighteen they went they had they had a pretty experienced receiving core and then so you're right he he did have a, a very different receiving core that's I'm sorry about that I blanked on that well I I I'm interested in that because I think Jake Fromm is sort of a, a similar situation now I mm-hmm. I don't think Jake Fromm was was ever a first round pick like a lot of people were talking about him before this past season started but he obviously had a huge statistical drop off uh change in offensive coordinator loss of some pretty good receivers and right really did, didn't have a lot going on at receiver this year after Lawrence Cager got hurt and then you know Pickens was kind of coming into his own but he wasn't quite quite there yet so how does that affect him because he's one that that does not have the obvious physical traits that Jordan Love has, but he did lead a team to the national title game as a true freshman in an SEC title. Uh, he did have two very, very productive seasons where he was like nine yards in attempt. And then he has this, this egg that, that was laid his junior year. Right. And he, I mean, I, I think bottom line on Fromm is he's just not going to be for everybody. Um, you know, there are going to be certain teams, certain coaches who, really want to work with him because of uh, what he offers above the neck, you know, his ability to break down coverages. And he's so smart uh, the way he sees the field. Uh, he's an accurate player. And so I think there's a lot about him that uh, is going to be, is going to translate and something that, uh, you know, teams are going to want to work with, but it's just, it, there might only be four or five teams that are really interested in him uh, in the second round range. And so it just comes down to uh, the right fit. And, the Colts are the interesting team to me with these quarterbacks. I think, you know, I had Jordan Love going at 34 to the Colts in my mock draft. I think it's probably more likely that someone trades up into the late first to get Jordan Love. But it, whether or not that's a Colts, you know, we'll, we'll find out. But uh, would the Col- if it, they don't go after Jordan Love, I think Jake Fromm uh, would be kind of the perfect plan B for Indianapolis. I think that when you look at that team sitting behind Phillip Rivers for a year uh, with Frank Reich at, 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 as your head coach, an offensive-minded uh, head coach, former quarterback himself. I think that'd just be a great fit for Fromm, great fit for Indianapolis. So, yeah, he was never that first-round guy, but it's tough to find exactly the the best fit for him, um, you know, going team by team. And, and you know, I think I, Indianapolis I put I put him fit. with the buck. I put him with the Bucks to, to sit behind Brady. That's uh, – and, and but that would be – Maybe in the third round. I don't know if you do that in the second. 
See, then that's how I felt about Eason. Uh, I, I think I think Jacob Eason, I thought, would be perfect behind Brady in that because Bruce Arians loves to go downfield, that downfield passing game. Uh, I mean, kind of the same reasons. I, that's where I kind of where I put Eason. Just uh, it, it, but I don't think they would. The Bucks would draft a quarterback in round two. I still think that they they would look at that as a sweet spot for maybe a running back or oh yeah, that's uh, an uh, offensive if you can get- lineman. Yeah, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, somebody like that. There's some, yeah. there's some really good running backs that could be available in the early to middle second round because you know it, it doesn't right. feel like there's a, an obvious first rounder. Uh, if if I had my druthers, I'd go with with Jonathan Taylor over everyone. I I still mm-hmm. don't know if because I I've bought into to the analytics that don't pick a running back high. Don't pay a running back right. a second contract. So, but but if you can get a guy like Jonathan Taylor, who is a very complete back, and you can get him at the bottom of the first round, that feels like a great place for him. But then sure. you, you talk about DeAndre Swift, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other guys that, Dobbins, that I feel like, right. yeah, J.K. Dobbins. I mean, you get you get one of those guys before pick fifty, you're you're doing yeah. something right. Well, and that's the thing is you look at the the last part of this first round. Uh, who's taking a running back? Like I think it's like I, I would have no problem. I think taking any of those four running backs in the late first. Um, you know, I think that's that's kind of where their value is. But when you look at the late first, uh, you know, uh, the Chiefs just won the Super Bowl with an undrafted running back at uh, or undrafted free agent at running back. Uh, you know they they've shown they don't need to use first round capital at the position, so I don't think that's going to happen. Same thing with San Francisco. Um, you know I have Dobbins going to Miami in the first, just because I think that Brian Flores is looking for that tone setter at the position, a guy that can uh, really give their offense an identity. But I, I think that you're right. The early uh, part of the second round, early to mid second round, is where we're going to see a little run on those running backs where, uh, you know, a Jonathan Taylor could go. Uh, we're going to see maybe Clyde Edwards-Alaire. If he's there for Pittsburgh at 49, I, that, that, that'd that be one of those kind of, you know, no brainer fits. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, with Ben Roethlisberger, they're trying to extend Roethlisberger's career two more years. You add a, a running back like that who, you know, was second in the FBS last year with 55 catches. Uh, you know, his, his ability to find those hidden yards, you know, what's what's normally a four-yard gain for most backs. Somehow he finds a way to get seven yards. Uh, it's a big difference going from second and six to second and three. Uh, th- that's that's what he offers you. Uh, and, you know, anyone who watched, uh, you know, any of LSU this year knows how important, you know, Joe Burrow is the lead singer, but you can't tell the story of that 2019 LSU season without Edwards Alaire and what he meant for that offense. Oh yeah, I mean he he made that offense go, and he made he made it very versatile. Basically, he made them tough to scheme up because you didn't know yeah. what he was going to be doing from play to play. They they did so many different things with him. I, I'm curious. I mean, I, I look at the Christian McCaffrey contract, and and as I look at backs now, I find myself looking at their receiving numbers, or at least do I know that they can do this? Because you know Taylor, I feel like could be a really good receiver. It just wasn't something that Wisconsin wanted him doing as much. But, you know, when I saw Edward Solaire and, and you had him at 49, I think I, I sent him to the Bucks at 45 in the, the little exercise I did just because I thought mm-hmm. Tom Brady would, would feast with a guy like that. Yeah. But how, how important is what a bat can do catching the ball out of the backfield now versus, say, 10 years ago? 
Oh yeah, there's no question that that's a big part of, and it's for coaches. You just want a back that can stay on the field for three downs, and you know he doesn't have to come off the field in obvious passing downs. And it's not only catching the ball, but pass protection, being able to be a blocker uh, that you can rely rely on. That's going to not only locate where the blitzer's coming from or the pressure, but it's going to stay in there and stand them up. And that's something that. Jonathan Taylor just wasn't asked to do that a ton. Um, it's not that he can't do it. It's just he wasn't asked to do it. So that there is a projection there with Jonathan Taylor that I think not every team is going to be comfortable with. Um, so that's Jonathan Taylor is a really interesting fit. I think you look at a team like Detroit, uh, and that's where I have him going to my mock draft. They're looking – they would love to be like the Titans last year with Derrick Henry um, and, you know, be that just you, you grind uh, with a run game, let your quarterback make plays. Um, and, and so I think Jonathan Taylor in the early second to a team like the Lions would be be a great fit. But uh, they also value uh, a back that can hold on to the football. And Jonathan Taylor, fumbles were an issue for him. So, you know, he has a few things working against him. But, you know, I, I think that when you look at the totality of his uh, career and what he did at Wisconsin, and it's just it's hard not to fall for a guy like that. And I, I tell you what, I would not be surprised if we see a surprise team in the late first take a guy like Jonathan Taylor. Like Seattle, just putting that out there. Uh, you know, John Schneider does not care. He's going to take players that are going to help his team, help his offense. Jonathan Taylor would certainly do that. So when you were doing this mock draft, the, the, the most recent one the, in the first round, is there one pick where you felt like, okay, I may be going out on a little bit of a limb here, but I just really like this player and I feel like they, they belong here? Uh, you know, I don't know if there, I necessarily had that. I, I, I don't think I had a huge surprise um, in the first round. I, I think maybe if there was one, uh, I think it was the Seattle with Josh Uche, uh, who, you know, Seattle's always a wild card in the first round. Two years ago, it was Rashad Penny. Last year, it was LJ Collier from TCU. So they're, they, they always kind of take players that are on high on their board, but maybe not necessarily high on other boards. This year, I haven't taken Josh Uche, the pass rusher from Michigan, who was not a full-time player, uh, you know, really came on as a senior. Not the biggest guy, 6'1", about 245, but it's all about speed with him uh, off the edge. And he's probably more of a sub-package rusher as a rookie as he gets his feet wet and becomes a uh, better player, develops. But you just can't teach that speed that he's going to offer. And, you know, similar to maybe when they drafted Bruce Irvin, um, you know, almost 10 years ago now out of West Virginia, just a versatile linebacker that that brings speed, that brings versatility. I, I could see the Seahawks making a move like that, uh, like with the Josh Uche. How, how much, do, when you talk to general managers, to executives, to scouts, do they how many more questions do they ask when they feel like it's there's a guy like Uche who it seems like the consensus is that that he was either underused at Michigan or maybe miscast at Michigan how much of that is them questioning okay i see this and this looks like the case but is there was there a reason these college coaches didn't cast him in a different role or didn't want and Michigan we we kind of know that Don Brown does what he likes to do and right he's probably not going to change the roles up that much. So that, that would make sense, but it it does seem like it it would kind of nag at me like, okay, I think this guy could actually be a better pro than he was as a college player. But was there some reason that, that it didn't happen there? Yeah. And that, that's part of an evaluator's job is, you know, you have to be part evaluator. You've got to be part detective. You got to be part psychologist. You know, you have to figure out all these things and it's not always cut and dry. Some, some guys have, you know, obviously had an injury or maybe they were just knuckleheads, you know, immature moments uh, as, as underclassmen, things like that. 
Um, some guys is more technical in terms of the, the football catching up with them. Um, just being, you know, you go to a, a, a program like Michigan where there's a lot of four and five star guys, and it's it's tough to supplant some of those guys on the depth chart. And so the the light bulb doesn't turn on for them until they're a little bit uh, a little bit older. And a guy like Josh Uche, who's a very young player, uh, he just turned 21 during his senior season. Uh, at Michigan, well, I guess technically he was a redshirt junior, uh, but his fourth year on campus, he turned 21. So he's a younger player. Uh, and so I, I think this year he he really started to figure things out, but that that's the part of the job of an evaluator. So when you're GM, when you're sitting at, in the war room and you're building your draft board and the GM asks, okay, well, why did he only have nine starts? And, you know, you have to have an answer and it can't be just like, well, you know, they just didn't play. I mean, you have to be specific answer for your GM and tell them exactly why. And for a guy like Terrell Lewis from Alabama, he has twice as many sacks, eight, than he does starts, four. And that's a little more cut and dry. We know he had the elbow issue, the ACL. It was all medical related where Josh Uche, it's a little more, uh, you know, just football maturity and, you know, being able to show that he can handle all the responsibilities of being both a pass rusher and a run defender. Yeah, and, and sometimes you get caught up in in scheme changes or, or the game changing. I, I remember C.J. Mosley at Alabama. C.J. Mosley didn't start until he was a senior at Alabama. And he was right. always a really good player. It's just that he was a guy who would play more when they played a spread team. And then when they played LSU, he wouldn't be on the field as much because LSU at the time was a big, you know, just line up, keep it inside the hash marks and, and go downhill kind of team. And then his senior year, Nick Saban is adjusting the defense to because, you know, Kevin Sumlin's in the league at Texas A&M now and Hugh freezes at Ole Miss and they're playing these massively spread out up-tempo offenses and all of a sudden C.J. Mosley is the perfect player for that and so sometimes there's that too I I was laughing when as you were talking about the Uche thing and and, you know the general manager is going to ask the question I I, somebody I know at LSU had had texted me and said we keep getting these questions about Patrick Queen uh like how come he didn't play more and and the the person told me I just texted back the words Devin White yeah sometimes you just got to think about that yeah, exactly. His, his first career start was when White was uh, had that targeting penalty that week before Alabama and had to sit out that first half. And so that was when uh, Patrick Queen got his first career start at the LS- at LSU. And then this year, yeah, really played well. Uh, you, you saw the more playing time he got, the better he got, the more you could see him play more confident, more loose. And so, yes, a lot of these guys, it's just opportunity. And when they get the opportunity – they make the most of it. Some of these guys aren't very good practice players. Um, and and so it's, but once they get on in a game setting, they really turn it on. But you know, the NFL draft and scouting, it's all about projection. And for some of these guys, it's tougher than others. Uh, some of the, you know, Zach Bond, for example, from Wisconsin, he was a strictly a pass rusher at Wisconsin. And that made it, that makes it a little tough uh, projecting him to the pros because when you look at him, He's 6'2", 238. He's not really the mold of an edge rusher in the NFL. He's probably going to be a stack linebacker. Uh, and but you didn't. You, you, there were a few times where he would drop and cover, and but mostly he was getting after the quarterback at Wisconsin. So you have to make that projection in your mind. Does he have the athletic profile where he can do that? Can he, uh, you know, handle cover assignments? Can he be a three-down player? Uh, and I think that's what makes Isaiah Simmons such an attractive player in this draft 
is because you feel confident he is a four-down player, doesn't have to come off the field in any situation. With an Isaiah Simmons, you kind of flip the script. You know, sometimes it's the offense that's trying to manipulate how things happen with up-tempo and things like that. But with uh, a defensive playmaker like Isaiah Simmons, the manipulation becomes from the defense because you don't know if he's going to spy, is he going to drop, is he going to blitz. Uh, that Having that luxury with the Simmons is such a, a game-changer. That's why we're talking about him as a top-ten pick. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's he's a bigger Derwin James, and he can help you at all three <laughs> levels of the defense. I mean, he can right. he can legitimately play safety in the, in the NFL if need yeah. be. He's that athletic. I mean, you watch him against LSU's offense in the national title game, and because Clemson's defense, not nearly as good as it was the year before. And so Agreed. Isaiah Simmons had to make up for a lot and did it for a while. Now, now LSU cracked the code eventually, but you look at all the different ways they were using Isaiah Simmons against that, that offense. And uh, he, there was, there's really nothing he can't do. And, and that's, that's yeah. the part that amazes me because he was safety. He could be, he really could be an inside or an outside linebacker athletically, uh, and then you also can drop him down on the edge and, and have him come off the edge. And that's a it is a weapon, like you said, because you can you can disguise what package you're in because he doesn't have to come off the field. He just has to move. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's a luxury that uh, you need. You know, we haven't really seen a player like this. And so you need to have a creative defensive coordinator who's going to understand how to best use a talent like that. Uh, but I mean, yeah, you look at a stat line from last year, he had over a hundred tackles, 16 tackles for loss, eight sacks, uh, 13 passes defended, 13 picks. I mean, this guy was just all over the field. I'm, you know, thinking about to the semifinal game in Ohio state, when he picked off, uh, Justin Fields at the sideline, he was lined up as a single high safety, but then the play before he was down by the line of scrimmage, uh, and you don't know, is he going to blitz? Is he going to drop? He can play over the slot receiver, and he does not look out of place doing that. So, yeah, he just the, the versatility to do anything you want it can really be a game changer for a defense. And that's why, you know, you look at number four, the Giants, they'll be interested. The seven, uh, the Panthers. It's just, I think the Browns at 10 would love if he fell to, fell to them. I just, I don't see it happening. So of all the scenarios that, that you've gone through, what do you think? we're going to wind up talking about the most like next Friday morning, first rounds in the book. What are we all talking about? I think it's probably going to be Tua um, and where exactly what happened. I mean, it's, is it going to be chalk where, uh, you know, Herbert and Tua go five, six or, you know, vice versa in those five, six spots. Um, or are we going to see uh, a, a wild card happen? I mean, whether that means a team trading up to three, to go get Tua um, and, and just the gamble that that is and everything that entails, or are we going to see Tua maybe fall past six? And if that happens, wh- what hap- You know, what's the the domino effect? Uh, you know, does that mean that the Raiders maybe move up a few spots to get him, or maybe they just stay put at, at a twelve and land him? I just think the Tua factor is something that is fascinating because it, it goes beyond just watching the tape and understanding what he does best, and it's it goes down to who, which teams have more of a appetite for risk than others? That that's basically what the Tua conversation comes down to. It's, it, it is going to be fascinating to watch, as he was fascinating to watch for his entire college career. So, uh, I am I can't wait for this because you know I, I just it, the NFL took some criticism for for doing the draft on time, but the draft's like the one thing you can do in the sports world that you could pull off while right. we're all all in quarantine. So, uh, it, it's. 
it's a little bit of fun that they have to do it the same way my kids are doing fourth and third grade. I kind of enjoy yeah. that. But but I also like the fact that there's just big there's this big sports event that's happening and on schedule, on time, and we all get to gather around the the Twitter fireplace and talk about it at the same time. It feels like a you know, because as sports fans we haven't really had a community event in a long time. We're gonna get one next week. I, yeah, I, I I'm really excited about that. And we, we, you know, Twitter, I've heard it described as like the ultimate, uh, you know, bar, except, you know, it's BYOB and, you know, you're talking with people virtually and that's, that's really what it's going to be. Cause you know, you can't go to a bar for the, this year's draft. It's, it's so different. It's so fascinating. And uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, if, if there's no chance that these workouts happening or anything like that, there's, there's no point in moving the draft back, uh, keeping it as it is, it makes sense. And uh, it's it's going to be fun to see it play out and it's just so different this year. So uh, I can't wait. It, it's been fun talking about these guys and, you know, hope, hopefully people are digesting the guide and all that. But yeah, I'm ready for it to be here. I cannot wait to see Dave Gettleman work at Zoom. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> Dane Brugler, thank you so much. And uh, I know you're, you're full bore through the draft. So uh, Thank you for, for all that you do for us at The Athletic. And uh, I, I got to figure out how to wait, a way to give our readers a book now because I feel like I'm slacking. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, yeah, up, up the bar a little bit. But no, I appreciate it. Uh, it it's fun talking about these guys. So uh, I appreciate having me on, Andy. Thank you so much for listening. Cannot wait for the NFL draft. Cannot wait for a real communal sports experience. It's been a while and, and you forget how much you take that for granted when everything's normal. Well, it's it's not normal now, so it's going to be great to to be able to watch an event and we can be the peanut gallery and chime in and have some fun with it. We can also have some fun with something else. We we we've had our Andy Staple show goes to the movie series. Uh, we've exhausted the college football movies for the most part. I mean, there's some we could do that are a little bit older, but I'd rather just keep having fun with it. Varsity Blues was a listener request one of my favorite football movies ever may have paved the way for the future of offense in football we'll talk about that because if on friday we're talking varsity blues the west canyon coyotes jonathan moxon he's only one man but whew, he is quite a vanderbeek varsity blues on friday we'll talk to you then